When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Attorneys independent of the Delphi criminal case filed a petition with the Indiana Supreme Court against Special Judge Francis Gull from Allen County for a writ of mandamus and prohibition. That's a legal term that asked for the high court to order a lower court to follow the rules or correct mistakes. The petition argues court records sealed in this case should be made public. The state's highest court has set a November 9th deadline for interested parties to weigh in. On Tuesday, Judge Gold refused to let Andrew Baldwin and Bradley Rosie continue as Richard Allen's attorneys. She said they engaged in gross negligence. They said that's the court's opinion. I spoke with longtime defense attorney Ben Jaffe. There hasn't been a clear showing that there is some gross negligence. And even if there was, does it warrant the removal or does that give the court an actual authority to remove them? Those are still unanswered questions. A hearing is happening right now for Brian Koberger, the man accused of stabbing four University of Idaho students to death last November. Koberger's lawyers now want to know exactly how investigators were able to gather Koberger's DNA that they say placed him at the scene of the crime. Investigators used a process called investigative genetic genealogy or IgG to collect DNA from another source and ultimately match it to the DNA on a knife sheath found at the crime scene near the bodies of two of the victims, Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan. This DNA match is possibly the prosecutor's strongest piece of evidence against Koberger. Koberger's lawyers say they need the information to help prepare their defense. But the prosecution argues they didn't use IgG to obtain any warrants. And they're concerned unknown relatives' identities will be made public if the genetic genealogy gets out there. In his order last week, the judge stated to balance the interests of the defense and prosecution, he will review all of the IgG information the state and FBI have. He will then decide what does and does not need to be disclosed. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. I am joined once again by the former Lawrence County prosecutor, Matt Mangino. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, we're here to talk about a couple different cases, and they've been in the news this week. And I try to keep up to date on what's going on in a lot of these situations. And you are ever-present on TV, ever-present on social you are all over the place. I see you commenting on everything. And you seem to be the resident expert, and I, you are the resident expert on this show, when it comes to law because of your experience, obviously. And we met back at CrimeCon, I think. And, right. yeah. you know, it's just uh, we've sort of formed this nice little uh, friendship where we're able to discuss these cases where I kind of get lost in the details. 
And I think it's important for the listeners to understand what is going on. So if you could give me a little bit of background, like what exactly is happening with the current situation in Delphi? Yeah. Well, yeah. first, Bill, I, I just want to say it, it's, it's always a pleasure uh, to be uh, on with you. Um, I, I love what you do. I, I follow what you do. It, it's great work. And, um, and so really, it's, it's a privilege for me to get a chance to chat with you uh, every once in a while. Well, but thank this, you. I appreciate it. You know, this Delphi case um, could not be stranger. I mean, it's, it's, it's really uh, evolved into this sort of, you know, sinister leak and, and, you know, everything that goes along with that. And, and then, you know, the defense team resigns and then they want to come back and then the judge says no. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it, it reads like a, a crime novel. Uh, you, know, you know, some of this stuff, if you were reading about it, you'd say, ah, that can't happen. Uh, but, but in fact, it does. So, so, you know, first of all, you know, we have this, this leak um, and, and we learned that, that the leak uh, may have been the responsibility of an employee of one of the defense attorneys who surreptitiously went in and, and took some uh, photographs of the crime scene and other, other uh, pieces of evidence. And then that was turned over to somebody else and then ultimately got into the hands of, of someone uh, who had the ability to, to sort of published that in, the, in a public way. Then we learned that, that one of the persons involved in these transactions um, committed suicide. Uh, you know, so, so it, it really, uh, you know, gets more and more uh, bizarre. You know, the defense team says, hey, here's what happened. We see an exchange of emails between the defense and the prosecution, and ultimately it's brought before the court. And, and, and the one attorney whose employee was uh, possibly involved, uh, removes himself from the case. Then the co-counsel removes himself from the case. Then they come back and say the judge coerced them and they, they don't want to leave the case. And the judge says, no, you're not coming back. I've already appointed alternative counsel. I mean, that's, that's really, that's some really, you know, skullduggery kind of stuff in terms of what's happened here. Yeah. I mean, it really is something that I have, you know, been keeping a close eye on because obviously I've met Kelsey and I know that the case has been very important to the community and really just the whole country has really been focused on this stuff. And to have such a breach of, I guess, uh, confidentiality, like you, it's just all been, like you said, it's playing out like a movie and it's stuff that you probably couldn't even write because people would think it was ridiculous. Like this right. wouldn't happen in real life. And there is so much stuff that goes on. I mean, this isn't even including the fact that it took a number of years to even apprehend this suspect where they had found a bullet that had been chambered through his gun. There's certain things about this case that just drive me nuts because it feels like they could have just done a little bit more research or a little bit more investigation of this guy and they may have been able to reel him in a little bit quicker than what they did. And do you, do you feel like that was one of the things that surprised you about how long it took for them to get this guy? And then when they did get him, they released what it was that put him there, two and two yeah. together. I mean, you know, 
Bill, as you know, so many people um, are interested in, in, in these cases, this whole, you know, uh, true crime kind of uh, uh, mania that's out there. And, and as you said, we met at, uh, at CrimeCon. And I mean, there, there's, there are people who are genuinely interested in this and people who, in some instances, are able to assist law enforcement uh, in, 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 you know, finding certain uh, pieces of evidence or finding people who are, who are of interest uh, to, to law enforcement. You know, it's tough to, to, to second guess uh, you know, investigators, uh, you know, to be sort of a Monday morning quarterback, but it's unfair. Yeah. But, but, you know, cause there's so much that goes into these cases and, and, and while, you know, investigators, you know, focus a lot of intention, attention on cases like this and rightfully so you have, you know, two, you know, murders, uh, you know, children, but, but the issue, uh, is that sometimes that's not the only case they're working on. So things move slowly and, and, and you're waiting for, uh, you know, some scientific analysis. You're waiting for, for other things that, that slow the process down. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that investigators want to be as meticulous as possible. Uh, they don't want to charge people who, um, you know, are innocent. Uh, they don't want to go through the process of screwing something up that would that would blow a prosecution. So, um, you know, I, I sometimes think that uh, you know we we expect things to happen very quickly because in the public what we see is is a sixty minute television show in which a crime occurs, an investigation occurs, a suspect's arrested and successfully prosecuted. Are you telling me law and order is not, is not realistic? It's not real. I, I hate oh. to break the news to you, you know, and, and, and even the other cases that, that we, that we see, you know, on, on other television programs that are real life cases, they're still resolved in an hour. Although it took years to do it, you get this sense that this stuff can happen very quickly. And, 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 uh, you know, with all, uh, you know, deference to the police, it, 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 it doesn't. And prosecutors want to put the best possible case they can put on, even if it does involve a little extra time. Sure. And I don't I know in like previous cases where, you know, Jacob Wetterling, he was abducted in 1989, a week before Amy Mahalovic. And I remember in one of the podcasts with his mother, you know, they were talking about the police and the tips and and they just had so many tips. And it's like. I remember sitting down with the police chief about Amy's case and asking him, you know, do you feel like you had too many tips? And he's like, well, that's kind of a, a silly question if you think about it, because if you don't follow up on all those tips, you may miss the one that is there, but you also see how it can happen. It's not that they don't investigate the tips. It may be that they just don't investigate them to the degree that they may another one, or they just might not have the w workforce or the manpower to conduct these sort of deep investigations, especially one where you have two murdered children that is really something that traumatized a community. And it's a rural area. They don't have a lot of resources. I can't blame them but it just was a weird thing that stood out to me as far as the having the 
actual bullet and knowing that it was something that this guy had owned or it just it's all been fishy and in your years of prosecuting have you ever seen lawyers act the way that these lawyers have been acting in Richard Allen's defense well you know this this is those circumstances I would say are, are unique I mean you know I'd like to say you know I I was a an elected prosecutor for for eight years, you know, overseeing an office in a, in a um, smaller, uh, more rural county right north of, of Pittsburgh. Um, and you, you just uh, these things don't happen all the time. I mean, you, you know, you have you, you have a high profile case. Obviously, there's a lot of people in the community and across the country who want to hear more about this. And somebody sees, oh, there's an opportunity I can maybe make some money, uh, take these photographs, you know, what's the big deal and, and, and sell them. And, and, and it just spins out of, out of control. And now all of a sudden, you know, defense counsel is indirectly involved in this and all of a sudden they're gone. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to say, Hey, you know, Bill, let me tell you about the time that blah, blah, blah happened, but I don't got one of those stories. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a very unique, uh, and strange development in this case, uh, you know, so, and, and it just makes the case even more interesting to the public. So all of a sudden now you're saying, well, look at what happened here. You know, this is a little shady and well, why did this happen? Maybe that's shady too. And why did it take so long? You know, so, so, um, you know, the, it, it breeds that kind of conspiracy sort of theory that, you know, as you see this case sort of, go in a bunch of different directions, um, you know, maybe the whole case is, is bad. Well, that, that's an interesting perspective to have. And what do you make of some of the claims that the lawyers made about, you know, they didn't investigate a potential cult and this was some sort of ritual killing. And again, something right out of a movie. What do you make of that? Well, listen, uh, you know, defense attorneys have a have a responsibility to zealously uh, represent their clients. OK. And so what happens is we hear about these things uh, in pretrial motions. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, may never uh, and probably won't ever reach a jury who, who, who's going to try this case. But we hear about it outside of the courtroom uh, uh, because you know, these hearings are open to the public and, and, and they should be. And, and you hear all these, uh, these different ideas that are floated around. Um, and like I said, I mean, you know, the defense has a responsibility to explore all those things. Uh, I don't think that that, that issue uh, is going to get any traction and is ultimately going to be something that a jury has to decide whether or not, uh, you know, this was a uh, cult sacrifice uh, or, or something like that, uh, but but you know it it makes for uh, interesting uh, reading, uh, and it makes for interesting um, uh, coverage, uh, and it sort of sensationalizes the process, and that's what that's what gets the public's attention sometimes. But you don't try these cases in pretrial mm -hmm. motions, and you don't try these cases in front of the media. Ultimately, you try them in front of a jury. 
And speaking of a jury, do you feel like this is some sort of tactic by the defense to somewhat taint the jury pool? Well, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily a tactic, um, you know, but, you know, the more and more uh, information that comes out about this case and the more news that it generates and the more social media buzz that it generates, it's going to put um, it's going to make picking a jury in, in that county uh, difficult. Now, the other thing is, and, and this is what always um you know, I, I find kind of ironic and funny is that, you know, much of what we hear about these cases is not necessarily the local newspaper writing about it or even local television covering it, although there is there's certainly coverage like that. But a lot of it is, you know, cable news, which everybody across the country can watch. And, and you know, people who are interested in, in, in true crime who tune into your program, they see it. Okay, it, it, you know, so, you know, somebody sitting in Pennsylvania and there are a lot of them who are looking at this Delphi case and saying, wow, what about this? What about that? I mean, you might have a tough time coming to Pennsylvania and finding a jury who hasn't heard anything about about this case. And and but that's that's the issue, uh, Bill. And that's what a lot of people uh, that that's a misconception about the the, the, the jury selection process. It doesn't matter if you've heard about a case because a lot of people are going to hear about cases and they're going to read about them in the newspaper. The issue is, have you made it, have you already drawn some conclusion about the case? And has what you heard made you uh, unable to be a fair and just uh, juror in this case? Most people will tell you, no, yeah, I've read about it, but I, don't have, I haven't made any conclusions and, and I can still be fair and impartial in this case. And that means you you can't eliminate that juror for cause because they're telling you, hey, yeah, I've heard about it, but I can still be fair and impartial. And, and um, you know, that's the distinction. So, yeah, there could be there's a lot of publicity around this case. Doesn't mean you can't pick a jury. Doesn't mean you can't find a, 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 uh, a room full of jurors to pick from who say, hey, I can be fair and impartial. I haven't made any conclusion about this. Yeah, I guess it's really not like it was back in the day where you didn't have that 24-7 news cycle where it is constantly being broadcast throughout the country. And you have social media, obviously, as a driving force, too. And it is something that I think is something we have to deal with going forward. People in law, people in your position, people in you know judges and whatnot those are all elements that again weren't something that even was a factor 30 years ago 25 years ago before the you know gen z i mean every kid's been born with the internet you know we we didn't have any of that stuff when we were kids we had to go to the library like that was the way it was (laughs) right to think that you would know about a case in delphi indiana 50 years ago the chances are zero and maybe as as a side note bill you know that that that's you know what's interesting about you know really what's going on in society right now so so you know those of us like you and i uh, who follow you know crime rates and and those kind of things because we're interested in that stuff you know we know that that crime rates are again falling murder rates are falling in this country uh and Yet, you know, people are at this heightened 
fear of crime, uh, you know, fear of crime in major cities. And most major cities are, are seeing a reduction in it. And, and, and really, what can you attribute it to other than that's all you see? I mean, the nightly news, you know, is, you know, it, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, let's not, you know, yeah, let's bring up the movie network. I mean, they yeah. pretty much the death hour, <laughs> like literally yeah, exactly. that's what the night, nightly news became. It was a farce, but now it's reality. Right. I, and, and so, and so people, you know, all these different programs that, that, that you can watch, you know, podcasts that you can watch that talk about cases and, and, and even, uh, you know, I, I do a lot with uh, law and crime network and, and, um, TV and you know you're, you're seeing these trials and you're seeing and, and of course they're all terrible no. heinous crimes yeah you know so, so certainly you're sitting in your in your living room in Pennsylvania or in Indiana or in Colorado and you're you're thinking crime is rampant I, I mean I got to get bars on my window I mean you know I got to sleep with a gun under my pillow and and really it's distorted it's a distorted perception of what's actually happened. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And I've been following that for years as far as the way people perceive our country or the perceive our cities as some sort of like cesspool of people getting mugged and murdered all the time in just broad daylight. I mean, things were way worse in the 80s, way worse in the 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, just the violence alone on the street was prevalent. Now it's like you can go walk around New York city and not have to think anything about getting into any trouble. Like certainly don't go to certain areas, but Hey, even in this day and age where they just put up the most heinous stuff on television, because that's what's sensational. The truth of the matter lies in the statistics and the statistics are, the fact that you're going to get abducted or that if you would be abducted are so low and the amount of parents that are freaked out over their children. And it, it seems to me as if it sort of sets the children back a few years by being so helicoptered and just being so constantly, you know, the, the gun, what are we going uh, what do they call them in school? The, uh, sh- shooter, uh, gosh, I'm going to, yeah. you the know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And yeah. The, you know, the mass shooting events and like, instead of like tornado drills that I went through and fire drills, which I'm sure they still do, but to, to think about how much that traumatizes a child. I mean, I remember watching the nightly news and it was the local news, but like it would get to the point where my parents would just flip the channel off because it was so bad. Right. And that would be a little traumatizing. And Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, nowadays, again, like you said, people in, are sitting around watching it as entertainment and... People like me have TV or podcasts about it and it is feeding into the culture, but it is also 
I mean, I try to separate myself in one way, and that is try to focus a little bit more on some of the other cases that aren't as well known. And even that's hard because the news didn't cover them very well because they weren't, you know, they were drug users or they were sex workers. And again, it doesn't matter. It's still a life. And as a prosecutor, you still have to prosecute that case. It doesn't matter if what they did. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's there's no question that that um, you know you don't you don't get to pick and choose uh, the cases that you're going to uh, prosecute uh, necessarily. I mean, uh, and and you have that responsibility to the community, uh, and you have that responsibility to the victims, uh, which you know prosecute, prosecutors certainly take uh, very serious. Uh, you know, I, I just think the unfortunate thing is that that we kind of have a it really a warp sort of a warped lens as to what reality is and what the way reality is depicted in television, newspaper, you know, other, other, uh, uh media outlets. Yeah. They call it clickbait for a reason. And it is definitely something that works. I worked in television news. I know what they put on the news and it's, Mm-hmm. a bunch of crap but it's get into the whole local news thing but you know it's just there are some subjects that local news should cover and there's some subjects national news should cover and then there are other things that they just don't need to exploit because it gets down to the point of exploitation and whereas i feel like in the idaho case you know you had four people of you know, white college kids, three women, very, very pretty girls living that life. And they're taken out by this individual they have in custody, Brian Koberger. And he's currently sitting in jail. And today the judge just dismissed the attempt to dismiss the case (laughs) by the defense. So another tactic of defense delay and how are you following the Idaho case? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it too is, is um, an interesting, you know, kind of an extraordinary uh, case that has touched so many people around the country. And, and you bring up the, this issue and, and not to be redundant, but again, I think defense attorneys, you know, have to zealously represent. Sometimes they have to go over the top. I mean, here, you know, they're, they're, they're asking that the grand jury um, instructions uh, be, you know, were inappropriate and therefore the indictment from the grand jury was inappropriate. And, and you know, even at the time they presented it, you know, the judge kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I mean, these these have been around for 100 years. Uh, you know, this is these are the instructions we use. I mean, why is it different for your client? And ultimately, you know, you know, dismissing that that claim and and you know i'm sure defense counsel knew from the get-go that there was little or no chance that that was going to be uh you know accepted by the judge or granted by the judge uh but you know you, you present it um you know you make a record you know maybe you know on appellate review there's some way that you could could use this uh, but but I, I think what we're seeing here is is the defense 
sort of coming to the conclusion that, hey, this case isn't going to be tried in October. And, and ultimately, they waive now the speedy trial rule. And this, now we're looking at trial next October uh, in this case, which is so more gonna, realistic. And, so we're going to have and, Delphi and Idaho yeah. in the same month next year. Yeah, that's, that's going to be... make, you know, the, the, uh, the core TV. And the, uh, You're going to be working 24-7. Yeah, yeah, they're going to have to go on uh, double uh, double shifts. Uh, but yeah, so, 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 you know, so, so, I mean, it's, it's unrealistic even for a defendant. I mean, you know, let's go back a hundred years, um, you know, or, or longer. And, and, you know, you got arrested, uh, you know, on, on the, at the first of the month and you were picking a jury by the end of the month, uh, you know, speedy trial meant speedy trial. Okay. But we know now, especially in a high-profile case like this, with you know so much uh, analysis of evidence and things like that, and, and you know, the telephone, uh, the cell phone calls, uh, the, the genetic video, genealogy, yeah, the gene, yeah, the, the DNA uh, through the uh, you know genealogy uh, that you talk about. I mean, so so much. I mean, you can't be ready and do a competent job. For your client really within the speedy trial rules it it's virtually impossible so you're trading one for the other okay we're going to push the prosecution because we, we want this case to go uh, you know as quickly as possible you know maybe they won't be entirely ready but guess what you won't be ready as a defense uh and and, and so you know it, it's it's sort of self-defeating so on the one hand uh yeah maybe they're not ready but on the other hand well maybe you're ineffective because you haven't been able to do the kind of work that you need to do to prepare the case. That's an interesting perspective. And I, I totally respect that uh, perspective too, coming from you. It's one of those things where, yeah, you kind of have to throw all that stuff out the window uh, nowadays when it comes down to all of the scientific analysis, all the, you know, triangulation of cell tower pings and, you yeah. know, what does that mean? And uh, how did they find his DNA and what did they do to connect all these things? And it does make it for a much more, uh, it's, it's just a heavy burden to go through and you have all these files and these tips and this scientific evidence. And so you have to get your experts lined up. You have to, have, and I see where you're saying it, what you're saying about the defense and you're saying about what you're saying also about the prosecutor. You don't want to go into a case like this unprepared. I mean, you want to talk about an OJ Simpson style situation where it's just, I mean, of course that case is an outlier, but what I'm saying is there was just some mistakes made on the prosecutorial side in that case that may have not been done if they wouldn't, I don't, I again, you know, all these cases that get thrown in the media, they kind of are a wild card, I think, it, because the, the way that the media can twist anything nowadays, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're listening or you're reading the New York Times or the uh, LA Times or the Denver Gazette or whatever you're reading, you're going to get a different sort of opinion. And where back in the day, it, journalism was just writing about the facts, who, what, where, when, and why. And now it's become much more of a, just a sentence here and a sentence there can sway some sort of opinion one way or the other. And I can't even fathom 
what it would be like to have to go through all of these files, to have to go through all these witness testimonies, to re-interview these witnesses. So, I mean, to think even like October 2024, that's still like they're going to be working all the way up until October 2024. Like they're going to be busting their ass because it's not like this is information for, in both cases that is easy to analyze. It's not a purse snatching. It's not a bank robbery. It's not like, I mean, I guess my question would be if it was a bank robbery, would it be a easier trial to have? Like, is that, or is it just become so bogged down in this stuff that the idea of a speedy trial in any case is just sort of ridiculous? Yeah. Well, well I think, you know, what, what you have to take into consideration uh, in these trials is a number of things. I mean, you know, normally, you know, the great cases, for prosecutors end up in pleas, all right? Because when, when, when the evidence is stacked up and there's nothing out there, somebody's pleading guilty, okay? So typically cases that get tried are usually not the prosecution's best case unless they've taken a really hard line position where they say, listen, we're not offering you a plea bargain. You know, so for instance, last fall, you know, I tried a first degree murder case in Western Pennsylvania because the prosecution never offered me anything. They said, your guy can plead to life in prison. If he wants life in prison, he can plead. Well, I said, you know, if he goes to trial, he's going to get life in prison. So uh, we're going to roll the dice. You know, and it ended up that we ended up with a lesser uh, conviction than first degree murder. So, so my guy has some light at the end of the tunnel. It's not life in prison. But, but it's only those types of cases that, that get tried. And then the second thing is, if you're really, really going to try a case the way it's supposed to, you have to have the resources to do it. Okay. So if you're going to hire private counsel and you're going to hire expert witnesses and you're going to do DNA analysis and, and, and you're going to do the, the telephone um, ping analysis and you're going to do video analysis and all these sort of things, you got to have resources to do that. And unfortunately, 99% of people who are charged with a crime don't have those resources. Okay. So public defenders, they do a great job. I mean, you know, the only drawback for a public defender is that they're overworked. They're cer certainly not because they're incompetent because they spend all of their time doing criminal cases and they know what they're doing. They just don't have the resources to do the kind of things that they'd like to, or the time to focus on it. Um, so, so, you know, when we think about these cases, we're looking at a very limited number of cases, very few cases get tried, very few cases get tried. And those cases, a large number of them are not the best case for the prosecution or they would have gotten a plea. So, so you're, you're working with a dynamic here that you have resourceful defendants in bad cases and they make for really sensational trials. That is another interesting uh, perspective. I think a lot of people don't know that about cases. And it does make you wonder in a case like Richard Allen or uh, Brian Koberger, you know, where these cases do the prosecutors just say, no, we're not doing anything. And because it's so heinous, I, I get both of the, if that's the case, I get it. But what is the percentage? I mean, we're talking like single digits that go to trial, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, on a federal level, 
I mean, it's it's like 97% of cases end up in pleas. Uh, you know, state court uh, where, you know, a majority, significant majority of criminal charges are filed, um, you know, it's at like 95%. You know, so so only one, you know, literally one in 20 cases are is being tried. And, and most of those cases, again, you know, aren't cases, you know, with private counsel, with expert witnesses, with all, you know, it might be somebody who has a high number of prior convictions. So they know if they get convicted, they're going away for a long time. So they figure I'm just going to roll the dice uh, and see what happens. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, 95% of criminal cases end up in pleas. Okay. So, and I knew the number was high and it just makes me wonder like, you know, as on the federal level, they generally don't take a case or bring a case unless they've got evidence. They get the, they get the cherry pick on the federal level. Yeah. So they, so they basically know that they've got their guy pretty much if they indict you or whatever. And I guess basically on the, on the local level, it's the same thing. With that being said, with only one out of 20 cases going to court and these you know, pro bono, not pro bono, but, um, you know, court appointed attorneys, how are they able to afford any of this analysis that is out there? Because again, like you said, it costs tons of money to do a really deep analysis, analysis on certain things. Yeah. So, so most public defenders offices will have a budget and that budget will be limited uh, they'll have a, a, a line item in there for expert witnesses, uh, but they have to be very prudent about, you know, how, how they spend that money and what cases they, they use that money on. Now, of course, you can go back to your county commissioners or your county supervisor and say, well, I'd like I'd like more money uh, to try to get uh, people um, from going to prison. And as you can imagine, when you go to a public meeting, uh, and you ask a county commissioner, can you give me more money so I can try to get guys accused of crimes off? It usually doesn't go very well. And you, you usually don't get that that supplemental uh, budget request. Uh, you know, but but the, the thing that, that really, you know, sh should be alarming about that whole process is, you know, the cornerstone of the criminal justice system is that the, the state has to prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, that, that's a high threshold, and we take pride in that as a country, that we can't send somebody to prison unless you really meet that very high burden of proof. But when you think about it, if 95% of cases are ending up in a plea, we're not proving many people guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, you know, what's happening is the case is being proven, you know, probable cause is being established, that it's more likely than not that somebody got committed a crime and this is the guy that committed the crime. So now he's, 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 his case goes to court and he pleads guilty. Prosecution's never had, any, had to prove anything really more than probable cause because he makes an admission in, in, in his guilty plea. So although that's a, such an important aspect of our criminal justice system, there are not many people being proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, does that mean that innocent people are pleading guilty? 
I don't think a lot of them are necessarily innocent, but some of them are. And, and, and I'll give you an example of, of how that happens. Okay. So let's say, uh, you know, you're a defendant and you have a long criminal history. Okay. So you, you know, when it, when they look at their sentence guidelines, you're way up there. Okay. Now you get arrested for a, a burglary, which is a felony. And when, when they look at your criminal history and this new felony, you know, the range of your sentence might be five to 10 years. So you're looking at five to 10 years if you're convicted. Prosecutor comes along and says, you know what? You know, this isn't a great case, but we'll offer you uh, one to two years on a defiant trespass instead of a burglary. So now you have to sit there and say, well, do I want to go to trial where I could face five to 10 years? Or do I want to admit to something I didn't do? Now, this isn't the nicest guy in town. He has a history, but he didn't do this. He didn't commit this crime. But when he has to weigh, do I take one to two or possibly get five to 10? I'm going to take one to two. I'm going to plead guilty to something I didn't do because I don't want to take the risk of a longer sentence. That happens. That happens. And, and, and it shouldn't, but it, but it does. And, and so that's an example of, of when an innocent person pleads guilty because the system is built to make him shun that risk and take what's in front of him. Yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, having seen both sides of the fence for you, uh, I, I can only imagine what your, you know, thoughts are on all this stuff. Clearly, you just laid it out pretty well on how you feel like the justice system is and isn't working. But wow, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm still kind of blown away by the fact that these cases, the cases that do go to trial, are the weakest of the cases. Now, I get when people, you know. It's just that still just blows my mind. Like, right. you know, so it's like you're almost twisting the guy in the defense chair's arm until he says uncle. And right. and it's like, is that fair? Or I, I see I'm kind of seeing both sides now. Yeah. And it's really not black and white. It's really gray. And God, there's like a bunch of mud in the middle of this thing that really yeah. makes this stuff seem really not that great. And what, well, what do you want you know, your like, final like, thought on that? <laughs> yeah. It's like the old saying that, you know, if you, if you saw how sausage was made, you'd never want to eat sausage again. And, and kind of, this is, this is the, the sausage making process of, of the criminal justice system. Uh, yeah. You're, that's a good example. That's a good example. Uh, but boy, you don't realize how dirty it is behind the scenes until you talk to somebody who's been on both sides of the, uh, of the table. And, uh, it's just nuts to think that, uh, we will bring a case, spend countless amounts of dollars, tax dollars on the weakest case that we have. <laughs> just, just seems weird. <laughs> yeah. But hey, everybody de deserves their day in court. And then the other thing about the one in 20, it's like how many court lawyers are used to being trial lawyers anymore? I mean, since it's being pled out so yeah, so many times, where's the practice coming from? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, that's, that's a good question. And, and, and don't get me wrong, Bill. I mean, I, I, I think that 
that our justice system uh, is the best system in the world. I mean, and we were, and we weren't saying. I never thought that you were saying otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, I think it's it's very, uh, it's very effective. It, it it does, you know, keep that burden very high and that responsibility very high on the state to present their witnesses. And there are so many different ways established through constitutional law where individual rights are, are, are protected. But but you're right. I mean, you know, there has to be there has to be some other options available as well that, that will help us to, um, you know, determine uh, guilt or innocence. Yeah, it's it seems like a very slippery slope. And with all the people that are involved in these things nowadays, I definitely think it's going to yeah. be um, it's yeah. something that's going to yeah. be. Uh, Sometimes uh, you got to keep working too, Bill. Yeah, sometimes work just does not stop. And yeah. on that note, we will. What are your final thoughts on both these cases, and where can people find you? Because I know that you're an extremely busy man, and literally yeah. just got the tap on the shoulder too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that, Bill. I mean, I, I, I think you know this. These these cases, uh, both Delphi and, and Kohlberg, are, are going to turn out a lot more interesting information over the next year as we look forward to trials a year from now. So, you know, now that that issue of the speedy trial rules out of the way uh, in Colbert, I think we're going to see a lot of motions. We're going to see a lot of challenges uh, to the evidence in this case. Uh, you know, Delphi is going to have to sort out, uh, you know, Ellen, you know, his defense team, you know, who's it going to be? How's it going to work? And is he going to be satisfied with that, uh, you know, as well? Uh, but, you know, I'll be, uh, as you will be, I'll be following those things and I'll be uh, covering them on my blog, which is at uh, uh, mattmangino.com. And I, I write every day. Uh, and then, um, you know, I'm excited to say that, that I had just um, signed an agreement uh, with um, Creator Syndicate, and I'm, I'm going to be writing a uh, syndicated calm on uh, law and crime so uh that's congratulations yeah so I'm, I'm really excited about that that's going to debut after the first of the year and um you know you can also follow me on twitter at, at matthew t mangino uh so and let's not I, forget I, about your book and my book yeah don't forget about my book um the executioner's toll this is interesting 2010 uh, which was published uh, a couple of years ago by McFarlane uh, Publishing. And what it does is it kind of chronicles um, all the, the death sentences and executions in, in 2010, uh, you know, kind of an unbiased look at it rather than cherry picking cases that are good or bad for your position. I thought, let's look at these 46 cases. Let's read about the crimes, the trials, um, the appeals, the executions. And then, you know, you decide what do you think that an excellent premise for a book and uh very very thank well done so thank you again matt for joining me today and i will let you go to uh go on to your bigger and better things but thank you for yeah. joining the uh who killed studio today and uh well, talking thank these you, cases it's been fun and i i always enjoy uh talking with you it's always uh, fascinating so and we'll you. and we'll catch up uh, uh throughout this year as far as when they get closer to trial and um, as things go on, we will, uh, definitely talk again. So thank you again, Matt. All right. 
Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week to a brand new episode of Who Killed? And many thanks to Matthew Mangino for joining me. He, again, is the former prosecuting attorney for Lawrence County outside of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And he is frequently seen on the Law and Crime Network and Court TV. So he is definitely somebody that knows his way around the legal system and that's why I wanted to have him on the show today to discuss some of these cases that I really get bogged down in the details so it's nice to have somebody with a legal background explain some of these things a little bit more on a layman level so hopefully you gain some knowledge on what's going on with these cases clearly we aren't going to see any trials for 12 months which is somewhat frustrating but As we said in the episode, it is kind of impossible to have a speedy trial these days with all the amount of information that is out there. So, again, check him out wherever you can find him. He is online. He is on Law & Crime Network and, again, Court TV. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3. And, as always, I drop new episodes every Friday. And until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts. People who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.